Please follow along as I read. Starting with verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. In chapter 28, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, where they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people... His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Father, your word is truth. Father, we pray now that as we examine the scriptures, as Matthew has given us this account, Father, help us to learn Help us to understand your awesome glories, your awesome power, your sovereignty, even over cover-ups and conspiracies, Father. Jesus has indeed risen. Father, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please be seated. You know, every so often, Pastor Ron expresses a very profound thought in a very simple way, so simple that even a child can understand it. I enjoy just hearing sometimes these off-the-cuff remarks that he made. At an elder meeting a few weeks ago, we were talking about sin and how some people love the sin more than they love the Savior. And Ron said something that really gripped me. He said, they love that particular sin more than Jesus. And I thought about that Because it's not just loving sin in general, just loving sin, loving alcoholism or or loving pride or, or loving money, but it's a particular sin. At that very moment, 
When you're holding that drink in your hand, do you love that drink more than you love Jesus? When you're holding that money and holding back from giving it to God, do you love that money more than you love Jesus? Do you love your reputation at that moment, your image at that moment, more than you love Jesus? What a great thought. What a way to think about every time you're tempted. Do I love this sin more than I love Jesus? And I really appreciated hearing that from Ron. It put it in an immediate context. Well, last week was Easter Sunday, and we were all excited about Easter, about the empty tomb, and about Jesus rising from the dead. And if you recall, at the end song, before I started singing, Ron gave another very profound thought. He said, next week, the tomb will still be empty. You know, after thinking about what he said, I decided to call the sermon today. The tomb is still empty. Because you see, we rejoice at the Lord's resurrection. We're, we're happy, we're, we're spreading the news. He is risen, he is risen indeed. But how many of us really think about the empty tomb the next week, this week? Well, even Robert today said the tomb is empty. You see, the hours, the days, the weeks following the resurrection, people did think about that empty tomb. Last week we considered Mary Magdalene and we considered the Apostle John as they encountered that empty tomb. Well, this week I want to go on a little different tack. I want to talk about those who didn't believe and how their actions actually prove the resurrection. So I've broken this down into three parts for you. The first is the concern. The second is the commotion. And the third is the cover-up. The concern, the commotion, and the cover-up. First, a little background information. We're studying the, out of the book of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew was written by Levi. He's also known as Matthew. He was a disciple of Jesus. Matthew was a tax collector, probably the most despised profession at the time. Now, I don't ask you to say anything out loud, but think of the most despised profession you can think of. And this was a follower of Jesus. This was a person Jesus called to be one of his disciples who wrote this gospel that we're reading. The Gospel of Matthew was written sometime between 50 and 60 AD, or about 20, 25 years after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Matthew gives us more Old Testament quotes than any other gospel. You see, he wrote to show that Jesus was Israel's Messiah, predicted from old, and that Israel rejected him. They rejected their prophesied Messiah. And our passage this morning will show us just how far the Jews, with the complicity of the Gentiles, went to reject Jesus. So let's dig into this and see what Matthew is telling us. The first part is the concern. Let's look again at Matthew 27, verses 62 to 66. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. 
So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Why were the chief priests and elders so concerned about Jesus? Well, recall from Matthew 21, during the past week, Jesus had entered Jerusalem to great acclaim. We call it Palm Sunday. People praised him as he came in. And during that week, he cleaned out the temple of the money changers. And understand that with the money changers, this was a source of income for the religious elite. He was dipping right into their pockets. He was challenging their authority. But he didn't stop there. In Matthew 23, he condemns the religious leaders for their false leadership and for their hypocrisy. You recall the seven woes, or eight woes if you consider Matthew 23, 14. You see, he was a threat to them. Their power, their position, their credibility, their public images, their ability to control people and make money. So Jesus' crucifixion was a plot by these chief priests and elders. And listen as Matthew tells us. I'll be looking at Matthew 26 real quick. Verses three through five. Then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. See, this is not the first mention of such plotting. But notice they wanted, in verse 5, they wanted to avoid an uproar among the people. Do you remember another time when they wanted to avoid an uproar among the people? It was when Jesus asked them about the baptism of John. He said, is it from men or is it from God? And they reasoned to themselves, well, gee, if we say it's from God, then why are we going against him? If we say it's from man, then people will get upset with us. So they said, we don't know. They wanted to avoid the uproar. Well, see, they arrested Jesus under cover of darkness. They wanted to avoid the uproar. And as you know, Jesus was given a sham trial by the Jews and by the Romans. We know that he was tried at night, which is illegal under Jewish law. And we find that in Matthew 27. It says, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. They'd been trying him all night. They'd been having these hearings in the middle of the night. In Matthew 27, 15 through 25, we see that Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. Yet nonetheless, he condemned them condemned him to death at the urging of the chief priests and elders. We see that in Matthew 27, 20. It says clearly, now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Who's, who's bringing up the crowd? The chief priests and the elders. In Matthew 27, 26 through 44, Jesus is beaten, mocked, and crucified. And the chief priests and elders were there. In verse 41, it says, So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. You see, the chief priests and elders were involved in this the whole way. And this takes us to his 
death and his burial, which are recorded in verses 45 through 61. And then we're back to 27, 62 through 66. So in verse 62, when he, or in 62 and 63, when he says, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate, the chief priests and the Pharisees, said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. What are they referring to? Well, to answer that, we look back to Matthew 12. And listen to the account. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 12, verses 28, or I'm sorry, verses 38 through 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So see, they're recalling what was said. And we know the story of Jonah. He was in that belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And Jesus here is prophesying the time he will be in the tomb, in the belly of the earth, three days and three nights. And that wasn't lost on these people. They heard that. So they wanted the tomb secured until after the third day. But notice how hard their hearts are. See, despite seeing all the miracles, the signs and the wonders that Jesus performed, they couldn't, or they wouldn't, consider that he might just be who he said he was, and that he might just raise from the dead. That didn't cross their minds. He was just an imposter. He was just a fraud. They had rejected the Messiah, the anointed one of God, but see, this was prophesied in Isaiah 53. Listen to what the prophet tells us in verse three. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. See, this was part of God's plan. Well, in Matthew 27, 63, they called Jesus an imposter, if you're reading in the NASB this morning, it says he's a deceiver. Well, isn't that interesting? Who's the imposter? In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Who's the deceiver? In John 14, Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So you remember, Jesus had called them out for their false ways and their hypocrisies as he was pointing to the truth. But they've turned it around. They've made him to be the fraud. They've made him to be the imposter, the deceiver. They've twisted it. Now in verse 64 it says, therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. See, here they're considering that Jesus' disciples would conspire to pull off another fraud and that this would be worse than that first fraud. They're already accusing the disciples of conspiracy. But who's the real conspirators in the matter? I want to draw your attention to the wording. 
It says, Make the, made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away. The word lest is an interesting word. Now your Bible might say the word otherwise. But it's important, you see, they're asking to seal the tomb in order to keep Jesus' body there. They want to keep the body there. This is the purpose of asking to seal the tomb, not to prove anything. They want to keep it there, lest his disciples come and do it. Otherwise, his disciples will come and do it. Don't miss the significance. Stealing, or sealing the tomb brings a death penalty for those who would break the seal in defiance of Roman authority. They're trying to use the authority of the Roman government to prevent what they thought was this hoax. Well, in verse 65, Pilate says to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. This is the same guard that was assigned to temple security. When they went to Pilate, they go, we need guards. He says, you have guards. Go use them. Go make it as secure as you can. And verse 66 tells us, they went and they made the tomb secure. And they set a guard. Now to make the tomb secure, they probably put a wax seal over the opening and a cord that if the stone was moved from the opening, the cord would break, the, the wax would come off, and that would be evidence that someone had broken into the tomb. Do you notice how they were more concerned about keeping secure the, the tomb of a dead man they considered a fraud than they were keeping secure the temple of the very God they claimed to serve? They took the temple guard, the security police for the temple, and used it to guard Jesus' tomb. You see, the chief priests and Pharisees have rejected Jesus as Messiah to the point where they are trying to prevent the fulfillment of prophecy. Talk about your hard hearts. Well, the next section is the commotion. The commotion. Now the word commotion can mean an agitated disturbance or a to-do. We all know what a to-do is. There's a big to-do going on over here. An agitated disturbance where people are in an uproar. Something's going on that's causing excitement. It can also mean mental excitement or confusion. Now I really think that fits in what we look at next. You see, if ever there was a commotion, it was at the grave on Sunday morning. I would call that a commotion. Well, let's look again at Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. See him. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee 
and there they will see me. Quite a picture of a commotion. Well, see, in verse one we see that it is on Sunday, the first day of the week, and it's Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who go to the tomb. This other Mary is the mother of James and Joseph. They go to the tomb as it got light. It says, toward the dawn of the first day. So as in all likelihood, they set out while it was still dark, but headed over towards the tomb. And then in verse two, Matthew describes what happens. There was a great earthquake. Now we've all been in earthquakes. Many of us in the Loma Prieta earthquake. Many of us in the Northridge earthquake. I got to be in both. I'm a native Californian. I know earthquakes. Shake, rattle, and roll, baby. I'm, I'm good with those. It's tornadoes and, and hurricanes that scare me. I've never been in one of those, but they scare me. But earthquakes I can deal with. But this was no ordinary earthquake. And you see, this was the second earthquake in three days in that region. Remember when the first earthquake was? When Christ died. The earth shook, according to Matthew 27, 51. But if that's not enough, here's another earthquake. And this one, Matthew says, was caused when the angel came down from heaven. Now that's what I call breaking the sonic barrier. You heard of sonic booms. An angel coming down from heaven touches off an earthquake. And then he rolls back the stone and he sits on it. Now stones that were used to seal the tombs were big heavy cylindrical things. They weren't just rocks, they were big cylinders. And they'd, they'd make a trowel and they would roll the stone down to cover it. So to take the stone you had to roll it back up. And remember they put a seal on it. It takes several men to move this stone. It's not just one of those where you just come over and just kind of heave ho. You got lots of guys pushing this stone up and down to open or seal a tomb. But this angel, by himself, moves this stone. He rolls that stone away. And if that's not enough, he knocks it over and then he sits on it. So he's using this big rock with its official Roman seal as a chair. That's the angel. Let's recall how he appeared in verse five. Actually, verse three. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Like lightning and white as snow. But listen to what Daniel tells us when he saw a vision of an angel. This is how Daniel describes an angel in chapter 10. And starting with verse two. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. 
So I was left alone and saw this great vision and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. That's an angel. Not some cute little guy with wings and curly hair. This little plump guy flying around with a bow and an arrow. Not these things we see on TV with these nice eagle's wings sitting there, all majestic. These guys are scary. And evidently they cause earthquakes when they come down to the tomb. So how did the Roman guard react when they saw this? You heard what Daniel did. It says in verse four, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. It's the same word for earthquake. They literally quaked. Have you ever been so afraid you were shaking in your boots? You've heard that term, right? Shaking in your boots? Well, you know, I was a police officer and I've seen people absolutely terrified. You can see them shake uncontrollably. Their knees weak, they can't stand. They feel like they're going to faint. Well, these guards were like dead men. Now, the Greek word for dead means dead. <laughs> they weren't dead, but they were like dead. They passed out. Have you ever heard the term fainted dead away? Well, they fainted dead away. They went out. Now, this is not an insignificant thing. I want you to think for a moment of these Roman soldiers. The Roman army at the time was one of the greatest armies in the world. These guys were trained. They were well armed. They didn't go there with rocks and sticks. They were armed soldiers. We don't know how many were there. Some say a few, some say a dozen. Some say perhaps dozens. We're not told how many were there. But we do know that when this guard all of them saw this angel, they fainted dead away. They were terrified. They trembled. They were afraid. Now, how would you react if you saw an angel? Remember, they're pretty powerful beings. In 2 Samuel 24, an angel wipes out 70,000 people with pestilence. One angel, till God stayed his hand. In 2 Kings 19, an angel, one angel, Wipes out 185,000 Assyrians. One angel. But notice that the women didn't pass out. When they saw him, it said, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. What a contrast to the soldiers. The angel comforted them, he told them, Don't be afraid. See, he wasn't there to comfort the soldiers. That's not his purpose there. And you know, he wasn't there to let Jesus out of the grave either. Have you ever heard the story, the angel rolls away the stone and out comes Jesus? Jesus didn't need an angel to roll away a stone. That's not why he was there. That angel was there to show that the tomb was empty. The hard-hearted Romans, they don't want to hear that. But the women who loved Jesus, who came to the tomb, they were there to pay their respects. That's who he comforted. Notice what the angel says of Jesus. 
He says in in verse five, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Why is that such an important phrase in there? Jesus who was crucified. It's not just any Jesus. And remember the name Jesus was a a common name. It's, it's, It's Joshua. It means God saves. We have that name today, Joshua, do we not? In Hispanic cultures we have Jesus, same word, Joshua, God saves. So he's identified this Jesus as their Jesus, the Jesus who was crucified, not just any Jesus. And then this one's for free, as Ron would say, the Greek word is in the perfect tense. It suggests something that was completed in the past but has an ongoing result. Who was crucified? Crucified in the perfect tense. And that result is our justification. So even then, he's talking about the nature, the value of that crucifixion. And then notice in verse six through seven, the angel says, he is risen as he said. Now Matthew records three different times when Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. You can look them up later, they're in Matthew 16, 21, Matthew 17, 22 and 23, and Matthew 20, 18 and 19. See, the disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand the full import of that. So here they are hiding. They are trembling in fear. It wasn't the disciples who got up Sunday morning in joy and anticipation. They need to be told that he's risen. And that's what the angel tells them to do. And that's what Jesus tells them to do. But see, this wasn't wasted on the Pharisees. That's why they wanted the guard on the tomb. Because they recalled what Jesus said. They just didn't believe it. They thought it was another hoax, a fraud, a satanic occurrence. But the angels tell them to see for themselves that the tomb is empty. And he directs them to go quickly to tell the disciples. And in verses 8 through 10, we see that the women depart with fear and with joy. They meet Jesus along the way. They stop and they worship him. And then they go to tell the disciples as he tells them to do. You see, in all this commotion, they're directed twice to tell the disciples, the news is too good to cover up. Go and share the good news, he's risen. Which leads us to the third point, the cover up. The cover up. Listen again to verses 11 through 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a significant sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So the women go and tell the disciples. Meanwhile, some of the soldiers go into the city and tell the chief priests everything that happened. Now why only some of the soldiers and not all of them? Well, some theorize that it was just a representative of the soldiers that was sent to the chief priests while the rest stayed at the tomb. Yes, the tomb is empty, but maybe they didn't want to compound the problem by abandoning their posts. Some suggest the guards scattered in fear with only some of them coming in. Others suggest that to take the whole contingent of soldiers, the whole guard, especially if there were dozens of men, would draw a lot of attention to the matter and they didn't want to do that. 
Personally, I think they beat feet. There's no account in the Gospels where Peter and John encountered guards at the empty tombs. I think they fled. They've had enough of this angel stuff. They woke up and they said, I'm getting out of here. Feet don't fail me now. But notice they did not go to Pilate first. See, they were assigned to the chief priests. So that's where they went. You know, it's thought that Pilate maybe not care so much about this Jew who claimed to be God so much as he cared about his job and keeping the peace. But he might not have cared about an earthquake and some guy in white clothes who looked like lightning. But he would have cared that the soldiers did not do their jobs and so might have punished them. And then there was this matter of this angel. How do you explain that one? So what do the chief priests do? Well, first they get everyone together to talk about what should be done. It says they assembled with the elders and had taken counsel. So they put their heads together. They started talking about this. What are we gonna do about this? A lot of thought goes into this. See, despite their efforts to ensure Jesus' disciples can't get to his body, something happened and now the body's gone. Their worst fears had come to pass. So they form a game plan. And the name of that game is damage control. You know what the definition of damage control is? Measures taken to offset or minimize damage to reputation, credibility, or public image caused by a controversial act, remark, or revelation. Does that not seem to fit this right here? They're in damage control. They want to minimize, they want to offset this damage to their reputation, to their credibility, to their public image. Caused by a controversial act? I'd say it was controversial. Caused by a remark? He said he was going to rise from the dead or a revelation. God revealed Jesus is risen. And note the hardness of their hearts. Remember the scripture reading earlier this morning from Luke 16? If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. They weren't convinced. If they're not convinced, the only thing left for them to do is to cover up. So they concoct a story for the soldiers. The soldiers are to say they fell asleep and that while they were sleeping, Jesus' disciples came and stole the body. Now I can imagine the soldiers when they come back from the council and then they're meeting them and they're telling this and the soldiers are going, sure, sure, okay. What? You want us to say we fell asleep? Are you kidding? Do you know what that would mean? I can imagine a soldier going, you know, I think I'd rather take my chances with the lightning guy in the white clothes than go in there and admit I fell asleep. I mean, they might think I'm crazy, but at least they're not gonna punish me, maybe kill me for dereliction of duty. But do you see in verse 12 where they offered the soldiers a sufficient sum of money? Or maybe in your translation, a large sum of money? Well, I hope to shout. It's a huge risk. But they paid him off. The chief priests also told the soldiers that they would protect the soldiers should Pilate hear of this. They convinced Pilate to kill Jesus so they already had his ear. And so another conspiracy is born. A conspiracy to cover up the truth. Have you ever noticed how sinful people twist the truth? There are those who brand Christians as intolerant while they themselves were not tolerate even the mere mention of Jesus Christ or his commands. There are those who advocate the destructive practice of abortion and the harm it does to women, all the while claiming that Christians are anti-women. Well, here 
They claim the disciples conspired to remove Jesus' body, but they're the same ones who themselves are conspiring to suppress the truth. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now think for a moment how ridiculous this cover-up is. All the soldiers, however many there were, had to be asleep at the exact same time, at the exact same moment the disciples came to steal Jesus' body. Now, have you ever lifted anything heavy? You lift something and you know, sometimes we do it with a grunt or a groan. You ever around the gym, guys are pressing some weight. They would have had to roll that stone away without so much as a grunt or a groan that might have awakened even one of the soldiers. If all the soldiers were asleep, how would they know it was Jesus' disciples who stole the body as opposed to someone else? Who was there to make the identification? Now, basic criminal investigation 101 will tell you that you need to question someone's testimony when he says, oh, I saw it in my sleep. <laughs> Finally, who would believe that a bunch of frightened fishermen and a tax collector would have the guts to take on the soldiers? Remember, these guys were hiding in fear and dejection. They themselves did not believe Jesus would rise from the dead. And then Matthew 28, 15 tells us, so they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. You see, that was their plan, and they're sticking to it. Some 20 to 25 years later, Matthew tells us, they're still spreading it around. But you know, God has a plan too, and he stuck with it. The chief priests and Pharisees unwittingly, and had they known, would have been unwillingly used by God to prove the resurrection. Remember, they asked for the guard to be posted. The disciples didn't. They asked that there be a guard there. With no guard, there would have been no evidence that the tomb was secure. But remember, they asked for it to be sealed. God could have had the angel kill the soldiers. He wipes out 185,000 Assyrians, what's a few dozen Roman soldiers? But see, that would have left dead bodies, a sure sign that someone had come to rob the grave. Instead, the guards were left alive as witnesses. Now, not to the resurrection itself, but to the fact that the tomb was secure and that now it's empty. There have been lots of theories propounded to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the grave. There's the swoon theory that says that Jesus wasn't really dead. He just passed out from all the beatings and the crucifixion and the pain, but he was revived in the coolness of the tomb. But you see, this flies in the face of the fact that the Romans were experts at execution. And they would have to be fooled even after sticking a spear in Jesus' side. It doesn't hold any water. The no burial theory says that there was no body in the tomb. But then why did the chief priests go to all the trouble to secure it? The hallucination, hallucination theory says that everyone who saw Jesus alive was only hallucinating. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Paul writes that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. If they're all hallucinating the same thing at the same time, now that's what I would call some pretty good drugs. The mistaken identity theory says that it wasn't Jesus himself, but a convincing lookalike who fooled everyone. Sort of like those celebrity impersonators, but only on steroids. 
He would have had to have the wounds of crucifixion, the exact voice, speech patterns, and mannerisms of Jesus, the same knowledge of all that he had done with the disciples. I mean, he couldn't just say, uh, gee, Peter, I don't remember that. He would have had to fool Jesus' mother. Now, moms, tell me, wouldn't you be able to see through someone who is impersonating your own child? There are many others, all of which make no sense. Matthew didn't include this account just to tell us a cool story. He wrote about the denial that was making the rounds at the time that Jesus' body was stolen. He meant for us to convince us that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. Only one who is blinded by Satan to the truth or one who is hard-hearted to the gospel could deny this fact. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. Chapter four, starting with verse one. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have every reason to rejoice this week and every week, 2,000 years after that first Easter. See, God is infinitely merciful. He is infinitely wise. He is infinitely sovereign. His plan was not thwarted. He used his enemies to prove the resurrection, and only the Lord God could do so. Yes, beloved, the tomb is still empty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow to your sovereignty. Father, your wisdom. Father, your mercy, your, your plan. Lord, this was all ordained by you. And despite the efforts of the enemy, despite sinful men, despite men who rejected you, who did all they could to prevent the truth from being heard. Father, you use their sin to prove the glory of the resurrection. Father, we praise you for that. We praise you for the comfort and the peace, and the joy, the eternal life that you give us through our resurrected Savior. Father, we offer you all praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 